0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24 7. And today's topic is near and dear to my heart as a recovering people pleaser. It's about how to get along with and work with anyone without going absolutely bonkers, and we're gonna be talking about that because it is hard. We're back in the office, the personalities, they're not always easy, and you have to get your own work done and maintain your sanity and the balance, and so being able to do that is super important. Now, my guest is Amy Gallo. She's the author of the new book, Getting Along With Anyone even difficult people. And you may have heard of her because she is a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review where she writes about workplace dynamics. She's also the author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict and she co-hosts the HBR Women at Work podcast, which is a very popular podcast. She's a speaker and workshop facilitator, and she's helped thousands of leaders to deal with conflict more effectively and navigate complicated workplace dynamics. She is a graduate of Yale University and has a master's in public policy from Brown. Now, the things we're going to get into today, you know, the cool thing about this book and about Amy's work is that she makes it really easy to figure out where things are, where things stand, and what you can do about it. So we'll talk about the eight archetypes of You know, the kinds of problem people that are in your office, the insecure boss, the know-it-all, not like we've ever done that, right, FOMO sapiens, those types of people and how to deal with these personalities. We're also going to get into very specific and actionable advice. That's one great thing about Amy. She knows how to bring the goods when it comes to actually just getting things right. So that's the agenda for today. And my small ask for the week is this. You're going to hear some ads today go check out the websites of the companies that I talk about. I don't just take anybody. I actually try to find tools that will be helpful to you. So check them out, go to their websites, maybe even use the code if there is one and try their services. It'll really help the show and hopefully it'll help you as well. All right, and now it is time to get to the interview. As you know, in every interview, I ask the same question and Amy is no escapee from that question. The question is this, what is a formidable decision you've had to make to get to where you are today?
1: I thought about this question a lot because I listened to your show. And it's funny because there's so many moments, like their pivots, like the decision not to go to grad school for public health or the decision to move from San Francisco to New York or, you know, all these decisions. But I honestly, I have to say, I think the decision that has made the most impact in my career is the choice of who I married. Um, because I have a spouse who supports my career wholeheartedly. And I don't think that is true for a lot of people. I don't think it's true for a lot of women specifically. Mm-hmm. And he has just, you know, believed in me every step of the way, told me to try things I was afraid to try, and honestly let my career lead our Family life in many ways, and and I don't think that's a common situation. And in fact, HBR published this article once that said, "If you cannot find a supportive spouse, don't get married." Um, and which was a very controversial mm-hmm. article. But I really believe that has made such a huge difference in my ability to to get where I've gotten to.
0: You know, say it's it's unusual, Amy. I'll tell you that I've had that response exactly once. In the past, Mm. for all the, I mean, at least 100, 200 times I've asked that question of guests. The other guest who answered that, I can't believe I remember this, was Sukinder Singh Cassidy, who was the president of StubHub, was very senior at Google. And so it is, it's such a fundamental decision, but we don't hear that often on the show. And so, you know, what's the name of your spouse?
1: His name's Damien. So Damien,
0: shout out to you, FOMA sapiens.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I will, I want to tell you, I, really dislike like celebrities who talk about their spouses and are like they make me a better person Mm -hmm. i'm my best self because you know i'm a conflict expert he's a therapist there's a lot of fighting that goes in our on in our relationship but it's good fighting it's productive fighting Mm -hmm. he does not make me a better person but he does let me be who i am and that's really
0: what matters to me plus you know when the celebrity says that you know they're about to announce their divorce (laughs) it's just so like (laughs) it's just it's just that everybody that's like a a hack for life now (laughs) now you just previewed our topic for today which is one that i think is it's such a good um topic for just as we get into like this this sort of new you know the the fall and stuff like that and it is this topic of getting along and Mm -hmm. this is the book that that is out now about getting along and just before we get into that i just want to ask you like why this topic and why now
1: Mm. so two two answers to that question one i have always been interested so i actually worked as a management consultant for a strategy consulting firm in new york city and i i enjoyed that job i actually really liked the firm i liked the people i worked with but i was less interested in the actual work like the strategy how to help companies Um, you know, achieve what they wanted to achieve than I was in the interactions in the room around those decisions. So I felt like an anthropologist in that job where I just observed how people made decisions, how they fought or didn't fight, how they got along or how they didn't get along. And that was just always something that was so interesting to me. So when I left consulting full time and started writing about management interpersonal interactions, emotional intelligence. That's really where I focused was where do where do relationships work and and benefit the strategy, the work of an organization or a team and where do they fall apart? And I wrote my first book, The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict 5 years ago, and the what that is actually what led to this book because what I found was that anytime I talked about the book, which included a sort of straightforward practical approach to dealing with conflict there would inevitably be someone who would come up to me afterwards or in the chat on this if it was a virtual talk would ask a question it was like this is all helpful but i have this one coworker, and they would describe someone who was really challenging and i thought okay how can i help those people what 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 research advice is out there to help people who are dealing with someone who really pushes their buttons who is making their life miserable, causing them a lot of stress and anxiety. And I started writing this book at the beginning of the pandemic, not knowing how important it would be because for the pandemic and for all of us coming out of the pandemic, if we want to think of it that way, is that the way we connect with our coworkers has fundamentally changed. Like I feel, I don't know about you, but I feel just less human when I'm this little box on a screen. And I think it's easy to let our relationships deteriorate or not actually happen in the first place when we're interacting in this way. And so the book, a lot of the book really became about how do we actually connect as humans with our coworker?
0: What you say about this pandemic period is so true. And it has to do, I think it's like when you're in an office with somebody it's so much more present the conflict or the the desire to resolve conflict. Like you sort of just, cause you bump into them all the time. Yeah. When it's a zoom box, you can simply defer and defer. And so the problems fester, right? And then it's like one day, the the whole team is dysfunctional. So Mm -hmm. it's funny. I just had a conversation today with somebody about a conflict in their office. And it's sort of like, because the people are in different places and because they're not forced to be together every day, you don't have those touch points to resolve conflict. Now, I am, I'm just going to put it up front, you can therapy me today, because I am <laughs> probably one of the least conflict or, or most conflict-averse people th- mm. that I know. Like, I've worked on that. It's an area of improvement, but I just don't like the conflict. It's always been hard for me. But the thing that's crazy is, you yeah, think about, like, this book is a dealing with conflict in the workplace. Like, I mean, I was just thinking as I was reading through it, it's like, <laughs> it's kind of like, maybe think of kindergarten because we've mm. been dealing with interpersonal issues our entire lives and seemingly have not learned all that much. So why do you think <laughs> it is I mean, right? Why do you think it is that we just continue to fall into these same patterns even though we have so much practice in our in yeah. our lives?
1: Well, I- and you're not alone. I mean, I, I still feel like that. I, I've written books about conflict. And then sometimes I'm in the middle of a conversation where I'm like, how did this end up like this? Why am I acting this way? Why are they acting this way? Right? It, it's. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One, it's interesting you point out kindergarten because I think throughout schooling, no one ever says, here's how you actually have a disagreement. Here's how you have a productive, difficult mm. conversation right? It's a skill that I think most of us expect, just like you said, we expect us to have because we've had practice. But yet, no one's actually taught us the fundamental skills for doing it. So it's something we have to learn, not rely on our instincts. Because remember, our instincts, and, and I talk about this in, in the second chapter of the book, our instinct with our brains is to protect us. And conflict gets interpreted by our brains as a threat. It's a rupture to harmony, to our resources, to our ego, and when we when we feel threatened, we don't act in mature ways. We we fight or flight, right? When and, and then that feel like I I don't blame you for being conflict diverse because it's just not fun. I mean, I find it fun, but that's different. But the, but it our brains really make us behave in ways that are protective but not productive, and. That's often actually what we have to overcome in order to deal with some of the more challenging colleagues we have or even to just have difficult conversations like asking for a raise or telling someone they're not going to get the the promotion they asked for, or, you know, the zillions of difficult conversations we have to have in day in and day out. You know, if we have to overcome our natural instincts
0: in order to do well at them, yeah, I read that book, having Difficult Conversations, which is by the same authors as getting a yes, when I was very yeah. early in my career because I had these problems. Now, you' you just said something that I think is so smart, which is it's not fun. But it's fun if you can you can sort of be educated, have the frameworks to follow, and then look at this with the sort of healthy distance of somebody who understands that this is a pattern of behavior that you must navigate and work through to get to the other side, which is what you're preparing for us with this book. So w- let's just start, I wanna get into, you know, you, you have these eight archetypes mm-hmm. of the types of kind of issues that we could face in the workplace and so what i did and you know it's a little selfish but again you know research is me search and so i just wanted to spray, i want to start out with the ones that i thought were particularly interesting from my own experiences and just have you tell us a little bit about how these play out so my first one that i'd like to talk about with you is one that i think everybody knows about so this is for everybody uh all you fomo sapiens the insecure boss
1: ah yes the insecure boss <laughs> as i say in that chapter there are many flavors of bad boss mm-hmm. but this is one that is particularly difficult to deal with because they often don't mean to get in the way and it's their own insecurity that causes all of this trouble and so then you're you're stuck in the situation of do i deal with their insecurity because that. That would actually, if they were lessened, if I could send them to therapy, right, then we would be in a much better position. But chances are you're not going to do that. You know, and let's just sort of lay out a little bit of the, like, typical behaviors Mm -hmm. of the insecure manager, right? They're overly concerned about what others think of them. Maybe they're wishy-washy about decisions. They're constantly talking about their own, you know, expertise or credentials, especially when it's not necessary to do so. You know, they want to control everything. Maybe they're leaving you out of meetings or not letting you talk to other people in the the organization. And this is all because they just feel like they are imposters. They don't have the skills that they need to manage the team. So they end up micromanaging or, you know, being really egotistical and self-serving, controlling, all of those things. Now, it's important to remember insecurity is normal if you didn't have insecurity, you would be a psychopath, yeah. essentially, right? Um,
0: it's a Sophie's choice. Which one you're going to be? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll take insecurity. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but but the but the the challenge is that it, we expect leaders to be less insecure. We think, well, they have power. They've earned this prestige. They've earned this position, mm. and so it's it can be really confusing. Of like, well, why do I feel more secure? than this person who has more authority power prestige than i do. So i think it can be a little confounding. Now, one of the the tactics, in fact many of the tactics fall into the category of trying to soothe their ego. Mm-hmm. And i always yeah. hesitate to give that advice because i don't want people to be in a position of having to butter up their boss or like give someone compliments who's making their life to someone who's making their life miserable. But I do think if you can get this boss to feel more secure, feel more safe, feel more at ease, some of the bad behaviors will go away. Um, But I I also think that you have to be very careful about how you do that. If you're sitting there, you know, flattering someone who is just sort of a a bottomless pit of insecurity, that's not going to go anywhere and you're not going to feel good about it. And if someone in the organization sees you flattering someone who's just not effective, they're like, you know. You might risk your own reputation by doing that. So, you know, you have to do that cautiously. But the more you can get them out of what, you know, experts call ego defensiveness. So they're not defending their ego, but they're actually able to be present. Think about what actually needs to be done. You know, have conversations that are collaborative.
0: Focus on what the team needs to do. You're going to be in a a much better position. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. See how you'll profit with Netsuite, and with rising prices everywhere you look, you gotta do the math and save money. Good news: by popular demand, Netsuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com/fomo. That's netsuite.com/fomo. Netsuite.com/fomo. Tudo bem, meus queridos Fomo Sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese, and as you know, I love speaking foreign languages.
1: FOMO. Oh, I just want to know why you were drawn to this to this archetype.
0: I just think because I as somebody who's conflict averse, mm-hmm. I have always I've worked with several people who by the way like were in, had incredible other qualities, but they were people who Because I am so supportive and conflict diverse, I found half of my time was like beating their ego to keep them happy and making them, and like always trying to convince them that my ideas they had thought of first instead of just like saying, "Here's an idea, let's go with it." That was my early career for many many years until I sort of stepped into my own. And so I, I I saw that in myself, and I realized what happens in that situation: one of two things. And one is that you have the old emperor's new clothes thing, which is like you're propping up a failing leader and telling them things that aren't true, and so you actually just do everybody a disservice. Or number. Two, you subsume yourself to the point where you they you know all your ideas become theirs, and you never actually get to shine on your own. And so, what does that turn into? Resentment, which is not where you want to be,
1: or career failure for you, right? I've 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 interviewed people who have spent done exactly what you said you've done, right? Like made the boss look good, and then realized. They made their boss look so good, their boss got promoted and they got left behind. And it was like, oh, no, that's like that's really not what you want to do. You do. But but I think there's a balance Mm. where between helping that boss look good, but also making sure your good work is visible and no way should you try to hide what you're good at, what your skills are, what your expertise is, what, you know, the sort of magical powers that you bring To the workplace, make sure people know about those, not just your boss, but the people around, you know, your boss's boss, your peers, the people you might manage. Don't don't let your needing to sort of calm this person's ego become a way of sort of hiding what's so great about what you're good at.
0: I'm smiling right now because I'm going to choose the next one. And it's like I'm doing this like I'm just like, so let's go to. Like okay, great. I love that. I, but do not become the know it all.
1: Yeah. Talk. Let's talk about
0: the know it all because I. I might have been that person once or twice, oh. but I'd like to think... By the way, it should we just should definitely say, it's not like you're just one of these. You could be no. several of the eight. You could be all eight if you're really yeah. messed up. So anyway, let's get, go to the... the <laughs> well, you could up. be all eight.
1: I would like to say you could be all eight if you're really interesting. That's what I would like <laughs> to say. Because, because the truth is, and I, this, is a, this is like a, a really important message in the book, is that we all exhibit these behaviors sometimes, right? And the know-it-all is the one i relate to the most cuz it's the one i think i've actually when if i look back on my career i'm like ooh i was that one sometimes right saying things with so much more confidence than i you know actually had you know talking over people believing i was absolutely right and everyone was wrong you know i've done all of that and it's also one that is can be really hard to 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 deal with um but there are there are tactics that that work partly i think making sure the know-it-all knows that you are not gonna just let them bluster like they're that they have to back up their ideas with facts and data and that can be as simple as saying when they declare that product will never work say oh that's interesting what makes you think that okay yeah what do we have data that shows that have we run any experiments right like and not not in a snarky, passive-aggressive way, we can talk about passive-aggressive if we want to, but not in that. But really, trying to be make them know that you're not going to just let them declare that they they're going to have to back up what they say with with facts and data. I mean, the other thing that I think can be really helpful with a with a know-it-all is you know really a- acknowledge that they actually probably do know some things and uh, that's connected to the insecure manager, right? They might be proclaiming because they're insecure, but is there part of their knowledge or expertise that you can validate to again, soothe the ego the same way you would with someone who's insecure so that they don't feel it's as necessary as they currently do to, to constantly put it, put themselves and their opinions out there. I also think it's the know-it-all. Sometimes you just have to be direct, right? I'm talking. Please don't interrupt me, right? I, or even sometimes preempt because the know-it-all is the, the they're classic interrupters because they they think they should have the stage at all times. So you can preempt by saying, "I'm, I'm going to share my opinion. I'd appreciate if you um, hold hold any thoughts or questions till I'm done." And then we can get into a conversation. Just make it very clear what the rules of engagement are. They may completely ignore those rules, but at least now you can say, oh, I asked you to to hold off. Can you hold off? Right. So you can sort of refer to the to the rules that you've set for how you're going to interact.
0: You know what I think about the the know it all, too, is that it's I would say it's like the anti-innovator because it's the person who, oh, we did that already. So let's not revisit that or there's the new voice in the room. They are different than me. They're younger. They're a different gender. They look different than me, whatever that is, who may have very different, innovative, interesting ideas, but we're not even going to give them an airing. And so those are the reasons why big companies just run around in circles and then they get their lunch eaten. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and you're so right to point out the bias aspect of this because the know-it-all is very much connected to the band splainer which we all know that term by now. Mm. Um, you know, someone who just doesn't believe good, good ideas can come from people who don't look like them. And so they are constantly being condescending or demeaning. And, you know, bias shows up in all of these archetypes and both in terms of the archetype, the person actually who's exhibiting those behaviors, but then also in terms of how we interpret. So I actually worked, I had a coaching client who was had such a hard time with a a woman he worked with and he kept saying she's such a know-it-all she's such a know-it-all and we sort of dug into it and it became clear that he just didn't think a woman in his field had that could have that level of expertise and it was a real like light bulb moment for him of like oh she's not a know-it-all she actually knows stuff and I've been reacting to that um it took a lot of work to get there but that, and that's something we have to keep in mind with any of these archetypes: is the lens through which we're interpreting this behavior is a biased lens. We all have biases, and so we have to be careful that we're not labeling people with these labels when we're actually just it's, we're actually just misinterpreting what
0: what they're doing. No, that's important. That's really important. That I hadn't even thought about that. Okay, I want to do one more of these before we yeah. move on because yeah. you did mention a passive-aggressive peer, <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. which is just oh, maybe maybe through my lens, maybe they're not that way, and I'm just uber sensitive. But let's assume that they are just a passive-aggressive, really difficult person. Mm-hmm. I, I can't deal with that stuff. So let's talk about <laughs> yeah. how how we how we frame that up and how we deal with it.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the you know passive aggressive person this is actually one of my research for the book I found that this was a term that came from the um military the American military in the 1940s to describe soldiers who wouldn't comply with superiors commands so mm-hmm. you know we know all oh, that person who says yes yes I'll do that in the meeting but then they turn around and then do something else or they act rudely to you like giving you the cold shoulder or interrupting you and then when you're like what's going on they're like nothing and they might even say oh it's all in your head right it it feels like I've, I've had heard it described as shadow boxing where you're just like nothing lands and it's so incredibly frustrating now it's easy to assume they're doing this out of maliciousness that they're just a jerk or but but usually it's actually a fear or a lack of something. So you know fear of failure, a lack of power or ability to to exert influence in an organization, a fear of conflict, right? A lot of conflict verse folks will resort to passive aggressive behavior because they're not they don't feel comfortable being straightforward about their thoughts and feelings. And I have to admit this is one of the archetypes I find the to be most challenging to deal with because it is like shadow boxing and you can't quite get anything to land. But I, I do find if you can f- sort of think some about what might be going on, is it the fear of failure? Is it a fear of conflict? And then try to create a situation in which that you can lessen that fear for them so they feel more comfortable being direct. Um you know, focusing on the content of what they're saying rather than the delivery. So, you know, if they say, "Oh, no, 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 it's fine. Let's just do it this way," that and you can say, "You know, I hear you saying that, but I, I also know last time we agreed on this, you actually weren't able to follow through." So let's let's talk about what's really going on here, right? Just sort of leaning into the conversation, trying to make it a safe space for them to express what they're thinking and feeling can can help a lot. It's one of those those archetypes, though, that I feel like can be really like this is one where I I don't always have high rates of success yep. in, in dealing with them because there's often something else going on as well.
0: FOMO. FOMO. Absolutely. And, and so this is a perfect transition because I want to talk you, you talk about nine principles for getting along with anyone. And we're mm-hmm. not going to talk about all of them because you guys have to buy this book to find out <laughs> all of them. Otherwise, you know. We'd be here for, we could just do the audio book, but I do want to talk (laughs) about a couple. And the first one, okay, I'm going to just, I came up with this saying recently that I'm going to just run by you. It may be considered controversial, but I'll tell you, let me just, you know, we're going to break some news here on FOMO Sapiens. So your first, uh, one of the principles that you put out there is focus on what you can control. Basically. You know, you can't spend all your time trying to change people, focus on what you can do. Now, when I hear that, this is what I thought of. And this is kind of my my little new quotation, which is, sometimes you have to let people fail on their own in order to step over them. Mm. Okay, oh, now I know that's very, it feels very Sun Tzu or it feels very Machiavellian. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm just saying like, you, if somebody's not doing their job, You can't take on their job. You have to allow, they have to show that they couldn't do it and then you can move forward and, you know, you kind of, the cream rises to the top. Thoughts?
1: Yes. Uh, So, okay. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts. Well, first of all, I agree. It sounds a little Machiavellian, but I do think that the first part I love, like sometimes you just got to let people be who they are. And sometimes that, that means digging themselves into a hole, messing something up making the project fail, right? Like sometimes you just have to let that happen because if you feel, if you feel, if you take it on as your responsibility to save them or to save the project, it's, it can be exhausting. And it can lead to those things we talked about before, right? Resentment, you know, burnout. Like you, you have to be really boundaryed about how much you're willing to do to help this person be a functional member of the team or, or the organization. Now, letting them fail so you can step over them, you know, I, I that's the part where I get a little, I'm like, okay, <laughs> Maybe but, step but,
0: around them. I'm not sure. I don't yeah, want to step on their head or something.
1: No, and I, and actually the image that comes to mind is like, what if you step over them and then they like stand up and stab you in the back? Like, oh, because I think the problem is if they know you let them fail, mm. there might be some shame that comes up. And that, for mm. example, is a tactic we know that never can, like helps people get along, right? When yeah. we feel shame, we act horribly. Like that, it's just it's a it's an emotion that doesn't really have a productive response. Um, but I also realize, like sometimes, like you're going to deal with that insecure manager who literally will not get out of the way, and you might have to let them actually, you know, have a big public failure that either lets them come to realize, like, oh gosh, this I'm not. I'm not succeeding or I'm not cut out for this or I'm used I'm totally using the wrong approach because if you're constantly covering for them which I think is sort of what you're getting at right is like if you're if you're constantly making it look like they're succeeding when they're actually failing that is counterproductive um but yeah I mean I and I don't have a problem with stepping over someone assuming you've given them a good chance. Because that's that is the other thing I will say about r- in researching this book is is in talking to people who are dealing with difficult people, then the knee-jerk response to just dismiss right away. Like this person's passive aggressive, I don't want to deal with them. Or they're they're a know it all, I'm I'm done. Or even they're a biased coworker who's like committing microaggressions left and right. I don't want to deal with them. And that's I understand about setting boundaries. I'm a big fan of setting boundaries, especially with someone who's taking a toll on your mental or physical health. But I also think oftentimes we haven't even given the person a chance to try because we're not all our best selves every day. We're not all our best selves every year, right? Like it, it, you you have to let people have their foibles and give them a chance to change, give a chance for the dynamic to change between you. So yes. Let them fail. Step over them. But but before you do, make sure you've tried to make the situation work first.
0: I think that's exactly right. Like you have tried. You're at the point where you've taken on the work. You're frustrated. You're starting to fail in your core mission. And so you say, listen, I've done what I can. I've even informed my superiors, that person's boss, hey. But then at some point, you it's not your job to save them anymore. You've got to keep pushing forward. And when you do that, you're going to look down and make sure they don't have a knife so you can keep yes. walking. <laughs> That's what you're going to do. All That's right. right.
1: Yeah. Well, and I, you know, there's one other thing I will say is that I think this is important, especially when dealing with difficult people, because what, of what we talked about, about our brains being, you know, wanting to protect us. Sometimes we don't act in ways that we feel proud of is it's incredibly important to be in touch with your values. Like, what are what do you care about? Is it equity? Is it fairness? Is it excellence? Well, you know, whatever your values are. Are you acting according to those values? And if if letting them fail and stepping over them is actually in accordance with your values, okay. But I just I what I don't want is for people to take action that they later regret because they feel like they weren't true to themselves and what they believe in.
0: I love that advice. All right. The book is getting along with anyone, even difficult people. The website is amiegallo.com. You can also find Amy at at Amy E. Gallo on Twitter. Amy Gallo, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. FOMO.
0: If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City.